up. And anyway, it's just exciting. I love the Gospel of John. I love them all. Uh, but there's just, I don't know, you just see some amazing things in the Gospel of John. Uh, so we will get started tonight. I will give, I'll just give a little brief high-level introduction of the Gospel of John, as I've done with each of the other Gospels. And then we're going to dive into uh, those amazing first 18 verses of the Gospel of John in chapter 1, which I just... Uh, I just love what's going on in those, uh, the way John is inspired to write in chapter 1. He, uh, one of the things that's fun about John's gospel is that he uh, tells us why he wrote it. John's good about telling us why he writes. So he tells us in chapter 20 of the gospel of John why he wrote the book. He says it in verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all of what we are going to read and talk about over the next several months is really about these things that are recorded, that were, that were impressed by the Holy Spirit on John to record for the purpose that his readers for the last 2,000 years and for his Many years is until Christ returns, we'll, we'll read this and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they would have life eternal. Now, the Gospel of John is quite considerably different if you read them, if you read your four Gospels. It's, it's, it's structurally different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, the style is different, and it relates some some significantly different content. Uh, you see some stories in John you don't see in any of the other Gospels. And and for me, I think this is most likely because it is written afterwards. There are some historical records that indicate that John had access to the other three Gospels, and so he, he was writing things that complemented what were in the other three Gospels. Most particularly, it seems, that he addresses some, some things that maybe were designed to complement particularly well with the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I think that makes the most sense of, of why is John so different. People have spent centuries, why is John so different than the others? This one makes sense. He, he read the others and was impressed to write some things that help fill out gaps, help us understand some things uh, in a better, different, more mature way as he's looking back and, and reflecting under the influence of the Spirit on decades of ministry. The, the structure of the book is pretty straightforward. You can always divide a book any number of ways, but, but you know, from my perspective, there's tr- sort of two major cat- sections in it. The first part, which covers the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, is, is really it's focused on Jesus' identity. So there we see you know, John the Baptist identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. This is where we see six out of the seven signs that point to the fact that Jesus is the, the Messiah. And when we talk about signs, we're talking about key miracles, Miracles that are so essential that point out some just astounding quality of Jesus that taken together, they achieve this purpose that John sets out, that by seeing the signs, the reader would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that through that belief they would have eternal life in his name. So so we see these issues of identity. We see these signs that point to to Jesus as the Messiah. We We see most of what are called the I am statements. Right, a number of statements Jesus makes that say, I am this, I am that. And these are all 
key statements about Jesus, nature and about his importance, his centrality to our lives if we want to have and enjoy that eternal life. And then the, the latter portion of the book from chapter 13 to 21 is, is what you might call Jesus' glory. Right, the glorification of Jesus. We see his, his farewell discourse. It's an amazing speech that he gives to the disciples. It's an amazing prayer that he preaches in the uh, prayer that he prays in the upper room. And then we see what John has been talking about all the way through and pointing forward, that, John, that Jesus has been pointing forward to all the way through, his glorification, the passion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And, and that's kind of the latter portion of the, the Gospel of John. John, as you read him, you are going to see what I might call mega themes, big ideas, or just recurring ideas, the things that he was inspired by the Spirit to emphasize. He, he really emphasizes that relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. There is no other gospel where, where God is referred to as the Father more than he is in the Gospel of John. There is a heavy emphasis in John on Jesus as God's unique son. And if you, if you just were to, to think about, as we, after we list these themes, if you were to go read everybody's you know, favorite, favorite verse, John 3.16, you see how many of these themes are picked up in just, just one verse. It talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. We, now, when we were in the Gospel of Luke, we saw the Spirit act quite often. So he's a, he's a major figure in the Gospel of Luke, but in John... We get more insight into the relationship of the Spirit, the, the sending of the Spirit, the purpose of the Spirit, and that's you know, just incredibly important for us in helping us understand the Trinity uh, and, again, the ongoing work of the Spirit in all the centuries since the resurrection of Christ. Major theme, obviously, based on going back to the purpose, eternal life, right? what we might call salvation. That, he said, was the purpose of the book, that people would believe, and by believing in Christ, they would have eternal life in his name. And so uh, this is critical. If you look at the I am statements, they're all in some way are, are tightly tied to this theme of, of that internal, abundant life that, that believers in Jesus Christ are supposed to have, that, that we do have. Uh, one of the other things we see a lot and I like to point these out where we get it. This is a characteristic of John's writing, all of his writing, not just the gospel, but his letters as well. Uh, signs and witnesses. He, uh, he, we have the seven signs that he calls, you know, he refers to this as a sign, this is a sign, this is a sign that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the long prophesied, long awaited Messiah, that he is the anointed one. But, but John does this thing that I just enjoy so much where he is just making it clear. He was there. What he is writing was his experience, the experiences he saw, the experiences he heard, the experiences he touched. And so, so you see throughout the Gospel of John, 47 uses of words related to witness, to this legal concept, if you will, legal testimony of Jesus Christ's incarnation and his life and his death and his resurrection. He highly emphasizes Witnesses, not only his personal witness, but, but the witness of many other people. In fact, you could, you could sort of categorize that there's at least seven categories of witnesses that are referenced throughout the Gospel of John, because John the Baptist is clearly called out as a witness. There are a number of ordinary people along the way who, who witness to who Jesus is, like the Samaritan woman at the well. There is Jesus himself. He says, I'm a witness. There are Jesus' works, his miracles. He says, they're a witness. There is the Father. He says he is a witness. 
There is the Spirit. He says the Spirit is a witness, and there are the Scriptures, and that they are a witness. And, and all of this is just to put in an overwhelming sense an understanding that, that these events are real, they are historical, they are attested, that this is not just some made-up story. This is, this is the real deal. And the last major theme that, that we're going to see a lot as we go through the Gospel of John is issues of love and obedience. And the interesting thing is that they are intertwined in the way John writes and presents, that there's no love without obedience, and that obedience without love is just legalism. And so quite often we see these will, will come together. We see it again in the, the first letter of John as well. So those are kind of the, the big, you know, if you will, 20,000-foot view of the Gospel of John. But what I'm excited about is between now and the end of May, we'll be able to get in pretty, pretty low-level close on most of the Gospel of John. And I'm excited about that. But before we jump into the, just a, some, like I said, fantastic introduction to John verses uh, 1 through 18 of chapter 1, um, since I breezed through that, were there any kind of questions or comments to people wanted to throw out to the floor? Or do we just want to get into it? I, I was, I, I was, I was, you know, I was kind of excited while I was writing that first part, you know, having reread the whole thing. But then when I started getting down into the verse by verse and was rereading chapter one, verses one through eighteen, I was just getting really excited again because that's just, it's just fantastic. Uh, we're going to read through it all tonight, but I'm going to break it up into four sections that I'm just sort of notionally calling for organizational purposes: the Word, the Witness, the Light, and the Incarnation. And so I'm going to start by by reading the first five verses, and we talk about the Word. And we know these are famous verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. These first 18 verses, they introduce Jesus, but they just they give us such an incredible high understanding, high view of uh, an understanding of who Jesus really is, who the Christ really is. It, they give us these key ideas and motifs, and it's almost like an overview of the book, and it just begins with this just amazing, in the beginning was the Word. And, of course, in the beginning is a direct link back to the very beginning of the Bible, to Genesis, to the creation. And the point of these first few verses is, is that Christ, Jesus the Christ, was, was eternal. He was not created. And, in fact, all things were created through him. We get this direct link back to the very beginning of creation in the beginning was the word. The, the Greek for that is the logos. And now there's a, John is, gives us this little bit of mystery for a little while. Who is the word? Who is the logos? What is the word? And we're going to find out later. So I kind of love, I mean, I feel like there's this little sense of mystery that builds up in here. And of course, yeah, we know the answer standing 2,000 years later. But, but still, it's, it's exciting, right? The, who is this word? What is this word that was there in the beginning this word that was with God, so it is a pre-existent and eternal. It is, it is a word, but it is a word that is distinct from God the Father. Well, that's, 
That's fascinating. The, the word is distinct from God the Father, and yet the word was God. So here we are getting the, the beginning introduction to, to two parts of the Trinity, and this would have been just, I think, a, a mind-blowing concept for a, for a faithful monotheistic Jew, the idea that there was, there was something else eternal and, and preexistent with God, and they could, they could almost probably swallow that. Um, but then to say that the word was God is just a huge leap for them. And this is, this is something that is crucial for us to understand. This is at the very heart of understanding what Orthodox Christianity is all about. The understanding that Jesus, and we know to be the word, and we'll see later on how John points us there, that, that he is distinct from God the Father, and yet he is God. This is a dispute that you know, would flare up in the early years of Christianity with a heresy called Arianism that, that said that, that Jesus, the Christ, was, was a spirit that came on Jesus later, maybe at his baptism. He was created by, you know, created by God, that he was not uh, uh, an eternal being. And John says, no. I mean, long before Arianism rises up, John says, no, that's not how it is. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I bring up the Arian heresy, not because you care a lot about a heresy from nearly 2,000 years ago, but because Arian heresy is alive and well today in what we know as Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness is a regurgitation of the Arian heresy from the early centuries of Christianity. It denies the eternality of Jesus as God, as the Son of God. They uh, intentionally uh, misinterpret the original language in this portion of the Gospel of John. In other places, they just edit it out, just scratch parts out. They used to actually, their Bible used to actually have blacked out parts um, until they finally got a better printer who would print the Bible, their corrupt Bible, with all their edits. So this is important for us to remember, for us to understand, right? Because there, there is a fundamental foundational teaching about Jesus Christ here that, that is very much the, if you believe this, you are in Orthodox Christianity, whatever denomination you call yourself. And if you do not believe this, you are not Christian. And so John gets right at it right here in chapter 1, verse 1. And he goes on, he emphasizes it again in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Again, he is reemphasizing that he predates all creation. He, the Word, again, whoever the Word is right now, we, we can sort of pretend we don't know who that is yet, that there's mystery. He is eternal. In verse 3, he is eternal, but then we find out more than eternal. It's not just that he was standing around at creation. It says all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Right, Jesus, okay, there I broke the, spoiled it again, can't help myself, right, is integral to creation. Now, Paul tells us the same thing in Colossians. Um, so he's not, John is not unique in this area. Uh, but it's just important. I mean, this is something we don't always think about, Jesus. We don't think of him as present at creation. We don't think of him as, you know, a critical agent in every every bit of creation but this is 
who Jesus is. Right? We just celebrated Christmas, and so we, Christmas we sort of get, it, you know, get in our mind the, the little baby in the manger 2,000 years ago, but, but this is saying for all eternity past, uh, the one we know as the little baby in the manger was, was with God, was God, was present at creation, all things made through him. Not one thing made that was made without him. And then it goes on in verse 4, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. Right now we, we get, you know, the light of men. This, uh, I think, if nothing else, points us back to Isaiah chapter 9, also a relatively well-known Christmas verse. Um, Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, which I will eventually get to. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So 700 years before, Isaiah says, you know, that the light is coming, that it's coming out of Galilee. And here, John tells us the word was, Life and the word was the light of men shining in the darkness, right? Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Uh, Now, so we see right here life and we see light. Both of these are huge themes in all of John's writing, right? Life is probably the the notion of life and eternal life is, is, you know, it's John's purpose in writing that people would have eternal life. And again, we see light and darkness, all throughout John's writings, there's going to be a you know, fascinating series of interchanges and dialogues about light and darkness, all sprinkled throughout the Gospel of John, where Jesus is interacting with people about light and darkness, blindness and sight. Uh, and again, when you get to 1 John, uh, you'll find a n- number of references to light and darkness. Right? And, the, and the light is shining in the darkness, and, and here's the thing about it. The darkness has not overcome it. Right? And John is writing after the crucifixion of Jesus. He's writing, of course, from the perspective of, of, a, of, a, a, of a crucified and resurrected Jesus. John is writing after several decades of ministry. So you know, he can say that this light has not been overcome by the darkness. In fact, we know this light will never be overcome by the darkness. And that structure where it says, and the light has not overcome it, that's a, that's a structure that's pointing us to something that, that has lasting impact, ongoing impact. That light has not been overcome by the darkness. That light's never going to be overcome by the darkness. We, and that can be an, should be a tremendous encouragement for us, because we certainly see plenty of darkness around us in the world. The light is never going to be overcome by the darkness. So let me pause there before we move into the next section where we hear about a witness. Questions or comments about these first five verses? I just love them. Yeah. You know, a good example of that, the light and the darkness thing, is that whenever you turn on the light, the darkness flees. Yes, it does. It literally flees. If you really think about what's happening here, it's just going. But, you know, the other thing is, is scientifically... Darkness is no thing, but light is. Yes. And that's the reason why light overcomes darkness, because it's something. It actually is something. That's why we can see it. We're seeing it. Yep. 
Absolutely. Yes. Preacher once told me, you never see anybody carry a dark light. I mean, a dark, what is it, a flashlight? A flash dark. <laughs> because you never see anybody come in trying to put darkness into the light. Right. You know, because that's not what we want. We, we instinctively want the light. You know, much like we instinctively want to know God exists. And the interesting thing we'll see in a minute is that some people fear this particular light and reject it. Yeah. But yes, we are made for light. So then John takes us in a little bit of a different turn in verses 6 through 8. And, and again, it, we, remember we talked about themes related to witness. Uh, and so we turn to, he introduces us to a witness. Verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not the gospel writer. The Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So he's introducing us to John the Baptist, and we'll we'll see that John the Baptist figures very very prominently in the next section of chapter one that we're going to be looking at next week. Uh, so it's very clear which John he means by this uh, because of the the pointing ahead aspect of it. But but he's saying that John the Baptist was sent by God. His purpose. To be a witness. And you'll recall I mentioned the sort of 47 uses of the word witness, and I don't remember how many of them are in here. He came as a witness. Uh, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Uh, so there's at least three uses of the word witness here in these three verses. To make that point, right? John the Baptist, who would have been a pretty well-known figure to a lot of people in the Jewish world, was here, and he did great things, but his greatness was for a purpose. It was to witness to the Word, to Jesus Christ. He was not the Messiah, despite his miracles and his exciting preaching. He was not the light. And in fact, we'll get to see that as we, again, look at John the Baptist next week. Uh, John understood his role. He understood why he was there. And he was very comfortable with it. But, but it was confusing for people. But here he is. Here is a witness to bear witness about the light. Why? So people will believe. Right? He came witness that all might believe through him. His purpose was to get people to repentance, to get them spiritually ready for the Christ, when the Christ would come, and then to point them to the Christ when the Christ emerged on the stage. And you know what's amazing also? is that these people didn't look at their life as the most important thing. It was the other life. Mm -hmm. And they were willing to sacrifice this life for them. Yes. And that's so hard for us because we're so consumed with the present life. We want we just hang on dearly to it. Like we've got to live. For what? To prolong the agony? Yeah. That's what we do. That's all we do is prolong the agony. Because what's coming is so much better. Paul writes about that so that we can have hope in that. It's such a great way. Oh, yeah. I, I 
Oh yeah, no, that's what gets me excited about this passage is all the the connections with the other with the other writers of the you know in the Bible with uh, connections within here. Yeah, you know, it just there's just so much exciting stuff going in here that just interconnects and interweaves with all of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. I just it I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, he says, you know, he says, you know, I must diminish, so he can go out, and he's comfortable with that. I mean, who today is like, oh, I need to diminish so that somebody else can become prominent, and then that's, it's not, it's not the American way to voluntarily diminish. Um, so yeah, his purpose as a witness, he says it in verse seven, right? He came that all might believe through him. It's again, it's that fundamental purpose of John's gospel is the same thing that people would believe. So we get that, that, that point. John is trying to make sure you get the point. You need to believe. You need to believe. So again, he makes clear John the Baptist wasn't the light. He was a witness for the third time in three verses to make sure we understand the role. And then we transition and talk about the light. Verses 9 through 13. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 9, the word is the true light, and it's the true light to everyone, right? Not just the true light to the Jewish people, which is what they were kind of expecting, He is a light made available to everyone in the world who will choose him, who will choose to embrace him. And John makes clear, right? He makes clear all throughout. He's not just indiscriminately, anybody gets a free pass. It's got to be those who believe in the light, who embrace the word, who embrace Jesus Christ, right? So here comes the true light to give light to everyone, but people still have to receive him. Right, verse 11, it talks about coming to his own, coming to his own people, his own people in, in many different ways, right? It's the, his own people that he created. We've already established that Jesus was involved, was central, a key figure in all aspects of creation. So literally he made the world, he, he made the people, right? So in one sense they're his own people. In another sense, we're talking about Israel, God's own people, God's chosen people. It was come to them and they, they rejected him, they killed him. John, in this passage here, he's pointing forward. He's really kind of telling at a very high level the entirety of the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. In these 18 verses, he's kind of overviewing or foreshadowing all of the key events of of the Gospel of John. And so the world didn't recognize him as being the light. He he controlled the world. He made the world. The world rejected him. His own people rejected him. He did not recognize that God was among them. And said so they just killed him. But for those who chose to receive him, who chose to realize he was the true light, who accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. And, you, you know, I, I think of First uh, John, was it 3-1, where, where John there is just, just reveling in the fact that he is a son of God through faith in Jesus Christ. 
just this is it's almost like he's astounded it's almost like he pauses in his writing to just celebrate this this fact and that that offer of adoption comes through faith in Jesus Christ and he, and he's clear what do you have to do to get it right who believed in his name you got to believe in the name right which means the nature the essence of who Jesus Christ is that he is the Christ that he is the son of god when you believe in him, you become a child of God. And he points out in verse 13, right, this is not, this, this second birth, if you will, is not about human will, it's not about behavior, it's not about human action, it's not about something we, we work hard to get. It comes from God. By grace, through faith. By believing in Jesus Christ. And then we get to the, the last section, the incarnation. Well, we just celebrated at Christmas, even though we don't always use the big words for it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So again, we're, this is like the Christmas story. We just don't realize this is the Christmas story. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Many of you know uh, that word dwelt among us is, is actually a Greek word that describes pitching a tent describes tabernacling, right? So what he's really saying is that, that the Word, who is God, became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt in a tent, pitched a tent among us. And, and this is very directly pointing back to the language of the Old Testament, talking about God's dwelling with the people of Israel in the tabernacle, you know, in this astonishing tent that they carried around with them for, for so long. And so here, God's presence has come back amongst the people. He is tabernacling among them. He's in a tent amongst them, dwelt among them. Something that has not happened for centuries, because even though they had rebuilt the temple and built it really, really fancy, there was no indication of God's presence in the temple, uh, the second temple, when it had been built. Not the way we see it described in the first temple era. And then we get some of this eyewitness language, right? He became flesh, he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Right, John? I was there. I saw it. He is an eyewitness to the events that he is describing for us. He has seen his glory. He's seen his glory in in a couple different senses. He has seen the, the glory that Jesus talks about, his suffering, death, and resurrection, by which he was glorified. But John, we need to remember, was also an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus, that time on the mount where, where he literally saw the glory of Jesus as he eternally appeared, the glory of the unique Son of God, the one full of grace and truth. So John is, in a very, very real sense, an eyewitness to the full glory of Jesus Christ. And he's sharing that with us. Verse 15 is an interesting parenthetical aside that 
that references John the Baptist's testimony about him. He's basically, and what we need to realize is for our purposes, this is actually the link between this writing about the Word and the life and the light and Jesus Christ. Because when he quotes John here, he's, he's quoting ahead. We'll see just a little bit down the page where John says this thing specifically about Jesus. So John is making clear for, for anybody who's not fully paying attention, that by the way, this amazing person that I've been talking about, this amazing, eternal, you know, pre-existent God who has become flesh among us is Jesus of Nazareth. Just in case you weren't following along. That's John's that kind of aside for us here. And he goes on in verse 16. Right, for for his, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I just think about that, like, you know, we think about grace as something that is unearned, it is something that is unmerited, it is something we don't deserve. That's the very definition of grace, that's what it means, and John is saying we get loads of it through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace, yeah. And, and a, the analogy, of course, is adoption, when we go to adopt a child, those parents learn to love that child. That child did nothing for that love didn't qualify, but the parent spends a lot of money to get them, okay, and spends a lot of time to develop the child. I mean, we do that with our own children, but adoption is special because that's what we are to him, to God. We're the adopted ones because we're children of God through adoption. Yes, and it doesn't stop at the moment of adoption. We keep receiving grace upon grace upon grace, just bounteous grace. That child never would have earned anything to get all that, you know, all that money to yep. spend for them and all that love that's given to them. Yep. Such a perfect example. It is, it is. And, and it's an example that, that, again, we're made clear throughout Scripture. That is our relationship with, with God, that through faith in Christ we are adopted as, as joint heirs with Christ. Um, with and and just, the other thing, once you've adopted that child, he is the heir to your fortune. Yes. You know, um, and, and what did he do to deserve that? Absolutely. And just to help us understand it a little bit more, he goes on in verse 17 and he draws the contrast, right? He's explaining what we receive through Christ. We receive grace upon grace. I'll get to you in a second. And then uh, in verse 17, he says, Well, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth, that's what came through Jesus Christ. Yeah, Nestor. Yeah, just do you have any insight? I know Uh, I'll probably have to go do. I'll have to go back to the original, the the Greek text, and get back to you on that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's referencing a textual variant or if it's a alternate translation of the same phrase. If it's been a couple of years since I looked at the original language of it, and I feel like 
it's using a very special word here that is translated as grace upon grace, but can be translated a couple different ways because it's not a very common word. But I'd have to, don't quote me on that one. I'll, I'll have to go back and look. Good. And then he, then he makes the point in verse 18, right? Nobody has seen God, but Christ makes God known to us. Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation and image of God the Father. This is something that will be, again, brought out and highlighted more throughout the Gospel of John. But this is something we always need to understand. There are different ways you can get to know God. Uh, you can get to know him a little bit through some of the, just the glory of his creation. You get a little bit of an idea and understanding of God. Uh, but through Scripture and through Jesus Christ, we have the perfect revelation of God. And that is such a just an incredible, incredible truth, really. Any other questions or comments? And then otherwise we'll pray a little bit. Just to add one little tidbit here um, with regards to translation and everything. When we say the word was God, when we're taking that out of context, we're saying that incorrectly because we're saying he was at one time. Inferring that maybe he isn't. No, right. So it's important to understand that the only reason why the past part, the past tense is used here is referring to the part that goes and precedes it, but it does not apply to who God is now. The word is God. He is correct now and forever will be. Yes, exactly. There is not not intended to. To describe a change in his status to be less than God, yes, as, but excellent point. But but the bigger problem that the church would face as an early heresy was the notion that he was not an eternal right. God. That instead uh, he was a special spirit that came down and on the man. That. Yeah, they, they, they key that in, and it's it's important to know so that when it comes against you, yes, you can say, oh, but that's not what it's referring to. It's referring to the part that was before, preceded. Right. It's speaking of the past, but it's not now. Yeah. But no, there's a, and the good news is, much of the rest of the Gospel of John, we see him use the present tense. I am. I am. Everywhere that he goes, and, and the, you, know, you see it several times in the Gospel of John, he says, I am, and of course people pick up the rocks to start killing him. Yeah, and that's something that gets lost on most of us in our American world because we say, I am this, I am that all the time. But when Jesus said, I am, in those cases, he was making a clear identification that I am God. And that's why every time he says it, they go to pick up rocks. Any other comments, questions? I was hoping to have a little bit more time to pray here at the end, but I didn't. I, I also knew I was packing a little much into the into tonight, but um, let's just take a moment and uh, and we'll pray. Just kind of celebrate, you know, that God came in Christ, uh, the grace upon grace that we have received, and and add to that we would we would be faithful as a witness to the light that we would in fact become the lighthouse for Christ that we're called to be. So please pray with me, Heavenly Father. What a what a treasure you have given us in your word that we get to study and get to celebrate, but even more, what an overwhelming truth we see in the, your word that you gave us your son, that your eternal preexistent son who was not created, 
but through whom all things were created, stepped into this world at Christmas as a, as a babe in a manger. That he came for the purpose of bringing eternal life to all those who believe in his name. Lord, by faith in him we receive your grace, which we do not deserve, which we cannot earn. And that we receive that grace in just overwhelming abundance. Grace upon grace, as John writes. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you. There's not enough words to describe our gratitude. And I pray that you will help each of us to remember this and draw strength and joy from this, to meditate on this often, this grace that we have received, that through faith in Christ we are your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, I pray as we have read about the light that you would help us to be faithful to take the light out with us, to share the light in this very dark world around us. Lord, we pray for the process, the transformation you are working in this congregation, in this church, that you would indeed make us the lighthouse that you have called us to be, that we would shine the light of Christ, not our light, but the light of Christ into all the dark corners around us, Lord, that many would believe and receive eternal life. It's in the name of your precious and holy Son that we pray. Amen.